Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spirit Seeker Hour. Spirit Seeker Hour is your chance to delve into the world of your inner spirit. The Spirit Seeker Hour is brought to you by Spirit Seeker Magazine. Go to www.spiritseeker.com to find out more. And now, here's Cindy Meyer. Hello and welcome. And yes, this is Cindy Meyer, your host of of the uh, weekly radio show, but I am also the publisher of Spirit Seeker Magazine, and Spirit Seeker Magazine is what brings the show to you each and every week. Spirit Seeker Magazine's been around for 20 years. It's just hard to believe. We started off as a quarterly newsletter and then um, moved to a bi-monthly magazine until I think it was right about 2002, and then we have been monthly ever since. So uh, Spirit Seeker is uh, is a print magazine in the Midwest. We started in St. Louis, then we went to Kansas City, um, and throughout a good part of Missouri and into Kansas, and then we expanded into Chicago. Then um, from there we have moved into Indiana. But the other interesting thing is that we have been published online since 1998. So um, we have online readers all across the U.S. and to Canada. We um, are starting to reach a lot of readers in in, uh, in Europe as well. So I just want to thank everyone for getting the word out and letting people know about the magazine, about the weekly uh, radio show, and all of the other things that Spirit Seeker is involved in. And a way to find out about uh, Mind, Body, Spirit conferences and some of the good work that is being done is to join the Spirit Seeker email list. We have a, a weekly email newsletter that goes out. Uh, we let you know when the magazine is online, who the radio show guest is that week, uh, and just anything else to do with mind, body, spirit. Um, so to get added to that email list, you just send an email to info at spiritseeker.com, and we will be happy to um, let you know about all of these wonderful events. We don't sell our list, so just know that the only people you're going to hear from is Spirit Seeker. Okay, and I'm Cindy Meyer, and um, I'm just going to chat for a couple minutes until my guest joins us. Um, and if he doesn't join us, I'm going to be disappearing for a moment to give him a call. But um, So I wear many hats. Most of you know me as the radio show host and publisher, but I, um, I'm also a gifted intuitive and life coach as well as a real estate agent. And people are like, what? How do you do all those things? Well, it's quite easy. I love everything that I do. And so right now we are at deadline on Spirit Seeker Magazine, finishing it up, and 95% there, just doing the final edits. And um, and then I'm also working three real estate deals. <laughs> it's like, okay. And then the other part of Spirit Seeker is that we um, we work with conferences all over the U.S. So tonight you're going to be hearing about the UFO conference and the Transformation Conference coming up in April, uh, put on by Ozark Mountain Transformation. Uh, they that's the Ozark Mountain Transformation Conference, but it's Ozark Mountain Publishing that puts this all together. They're doing two conferences back to back. The first will be April 5th through 7th, and that is going to be on the. Um, Ozark Mountain Transformation Conference 
featuring many of their authors. Uh, they they are a publishing house, and they have done this conference for many, many, many years. Um, the whole uh, publishing house was founded by Dolores Cannon, and then she uh, has crossed over, and her daughter Julia Cannon and her staff are doing a wonderful job carrying on the, tra- the tradition. And then Dolores had taken over the UFO conference after the original organizer um, made his transition, and Dolores took the UFO conference and created a sellout event bringing the world's greatest minds together who um, who are involved in, you know, all of these different sightings and all of the different um, things that are just, you know, kind of put up, there's a lid on it, so to speak. And our uh, guest tonight will be sharing quite a bit about some of the different conspiracies and ways that information is kept from the general public. Um, and that's that all kind of goes with the UFO. There was, it's my understanding that there was actually a, um, an agreement worldwide not to talk about these things. And then France finally said, we're we're finished with this, and they started talking about the UFOs, and now um, it's much more prevalent, more so out the, outside of the United States. But um, the fact that this is a sellout conference and there's not a hotel to be had um, in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, tells you that something is happening. So I want to give you these um, the websites, the transformation-conference.com, I'm going to repeat that, www.transformation-conference.com. And then the other site for the UFO conference is um, ozarkufoconference.com, www.ufoconference.com. So that is um, that is the story, and um, some of the the speakers that are going to be at the UFO conference are Linda Moulton from um, I'm not sure where she's from, um, Richard Dolan, Jim Maris, Nick Pope, Chase Kletsky, James Clarkson, um, Barbara Lamb, David Marler, Sherry Wild, uh, Eric Von Donneken was supposed to be my guest tonight, but he is unable to make the call, so we're going to be hearing from uh, Jim Mars. And um, this is the first time they've combined these conferences, two of them back-to-back. And um, I think it's a fabulous, fabulous idea that they have come up with, and Spirit Seeker will be there. We will also be... Um, at the Afterlife Conference in St. Louis coming up in May. We will have magazines at the uh, International Pyramid Conference that is coming to Chicago. We work with the Body, Mind, Spirit Expos in Chicago. We will be um, at, I think, eight other small conferences happening in the Midwest. Um, so that is where that is where the energy of Spirit Seeker is going these days. Okay, so I'm going to pause for one second while I call my guest. I think he is waiting for me to call him and um, does not realize that I'm waiting for him to call me. So this is an interesting situation. So you're going to just hear a pause. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Jim Mars, it's Cindy Meyer, and I am live on the air without my guest. Um, I am so sorry. I did not realize that you were 
Oh, are you there? Oh, hi. Hi, hi, Tim. It's Cindy Meyer, and I am um, on the air waiting for you with my guest. And I, it's okay. You were, it's okay. Um, may I, it's okay. May I give you the number for you to call? It's, uh, I can't. I'm sorry. It's, um, and, and I will learn, I promise. Okay. Okay. Okay, it's 347-857-4447. I'll talk to you in a moment. That is it. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay, bye. Okay, so my guest will be here momentarily. And I will bring him on the air when he gets here. But I am going to tell you just a little bit about him um, while we are waiting. Um, so Jim Mars is an interesting person. I, you know, I ex- uh, was expecting a different guest and found out that Jim was uh, very sweet to to fill in. And um, so I've spent the day learning as much as I can about uh, about my guest, which is how I. Um, how I operate, okay, as, as a radio show guest. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and bring Jim on, and he should be on in one second. Jim, are you there? I am here. Okay, so I have not told um, everyone about you uh, other than that you will be joining us, so I'm just going to do a brief introduction, and then um, away we go. Okay, so so Jim Mars, who you just heard his wonderful voice, is an award-winning journalist, and he has over 30 years' experience with several Texas newspapers. In 1999, he began teaching a course on UFOs, perhaps one of the first university-level UFO courses uh, taught in the nation. Jim has also investigated in the U.S. Army's remote viewing program three years before it was publicly acknowledged by the CIA and then produced Alien Agenda. In addition, his book, Rule by Secrecy, has been termed an underground bestseller. He has written numerous books, Above Top Secret, Alien Agenda, Crossfire, The Plot That Killed... Kennedy, that later then became a movie, Inside Job, PSI Spies, The True Story of America's Psychic Warfare Program, Rule by Secrecy, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, The Sisterhood of the Rose, The Terror Conspiracy, uh, and The Deception of the 9-11 and the Loss of Liberty, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, Our Occulted History, Do the Global Elite um, Conceal Ancient Aliens, Lost Secrets of the Gods, I could go on and on. He's been on numerous TV shows. He's written many articles. He has um, served as a, as a reporter, and if this is wrong, you can correct that, Jim. But um, in in the well, he actually served in Vietnam in, a, in an intelligence unit. But he was in the Middle East and all kinds of other different parts of our world, um, learning about so much of this way before people even knew to talk about it. So, Jim, you're a fascinating person. I mean, thank you so much for jumping in and um, being my guest this evening. And we could go so many directions with this interview. So I'm just going to let you just start by saying hello to everyone. And whatever you want to add, we'll go. I'll let you lead for a moment, and I'll follow here. Cindy, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I got it. Yeah, I got to admit, I'm not a one-trick pony. So you just uh, wherever you want to go, we'll go. Um, wow. And there's just so much going on today. It's hardly, you know, I can understand where most people don't even know where to start. Well, and your articles are pretty spot on. And the fact that you know you were you were in the Middle East and in Europe 
and then you left to join the 4th Army Intelligence Units during the Vietnam War. I mean, you've been around the block a few times. You have seen political things and, and things that we, you know, like, like you know, with the Vietnam War, there was just so much that went on. And, you know, yeah. so... You know, but but where you are now is you're you're analyzing everything. You you are writing about Denmark's prisons that have openings, unlike the prison system in the U.S., where you know all we do is keep building them and putting people behind bars. And well, that's because you know, we privatized them. You know, when you privatize it, then it's a money making operation. It's a corporation, and, and and their job is not to keep people out of prison. Their job is to get more people in prison. Right. It's, right. Uh, yeah, it's true, and I have watched a lot happen over the years. You know, I can remember how life was in the old republic. You know, when's the last time you heard a national politician refer to the republic? And that's because we don't have a republic anymore. We're the empire. In fact, some people might say we're the evil empire. Right. And, well, uh, and you know, yeah, I mean, how in the world did you get so involved, though, with writing Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy, were you just fascinated about that assassination as a kid? I mean, well, you were well, a kid. Well, I, 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 was, I was kind of connected to it even before it happened. Uh, I have a photograph uh, of me taken by the club photographer dancing on the stage of Jack Ruby's Carousel Club that was taken a month before the assassination and before anybody had heard the name Jack Ruby. So I was already working as a newsman in the Dallas area. I was going to school on a, a degree plan for journalism, and I was also working. I had been working at the Star-Telegram uh, under a youth program, and I was working as a, a sports and, and uh, news reporter for the Denton Record Chronicle. So I basically I was already on the path to being a journalist, and uh, when the assassination happened there in Dallas, I, that was just, uh, I considered that right in my own backyard. And I knew right then that this was a story and it was not going to go away. So I began, uh, well, in fact, I can remember I was watching television for probably 15 or 20 minutes before or maybe longer before they actually announced that he uh, was dead. And that that happened around 1 o'clock, which means I was probably on to the Kennedy assassination story less than 10 minutes after it happened. Wow. So I've kind of been there all along. And, and then uh, in my uh, newspaper career as a reporter uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I had an opportunity to talk, to talk with most of the uh, people, uh, the witnesses and, and participants and the people that were actually involved. I spent a lot of time with Lee Harvey Oswald's mother, and I have uh, met with his wife on several occasions, uh, Marina. Uh, I was uh, I interviewed and got to be pretty good friends with John Shield and uh, she and her husband George are the last known close friends of Lee Harvey Oswald, and of course I've interviewed uh, a whole lot of the police and city and, and uh, state officials at the time, and uh, and a lot of the witnesses, the Newman family, Charles Brim, Gene Hill, uh, you know a lot of them that were the very closest to people when he got shot. And even as a young shavetail reporter, it became pretty obvious to me pretty quick that uh, the official story, kind of like 9-11, just didn't hold up. Obviously, there was something going on there other than just a lone assassin have, having a lucky break, you know, uh, hitting a moving target uh, uh, with two out of three shots. just didn't work. Never has. 
one of the things that tipped me off, for example, early on, was that very weekend uh, the local TV stations in Dallas were worth. They were pulling in anybody they could find uh, who had been there in Digley Plaza or who knew anything about it. <clears throat> and uh, they were talking about it, it was generally acknowledged that they heard three big bangs. You know, it turns out I think what they heard were three volleys, but that we won't go into that. But they pretty much acknowledged that the, there were these three shots, and they all said pretty much the same thing. Uh, this includes uh, former House Speaker Jim Wright, who I knew pretty well, and we talked in, one time, and he was riding in the car behind Lyndon Johnson in the motorcade. They had just turned on to uh, Elm Street uh, when uh, the shooting happened, and he said there was a bang and a pause and then a bang-bang, two shots right on top of each other, and that's what the majority of witnesses said. Well, at that time, I was uh, I grew up in Texas. I'd been deer hunting. I even had some bolt-action rifles. And I clearly knew that you don't get a bang-bang with a bolt-action rifle because you have to cock the bolt and, e and eject the empty shell casing, and then you have to uh, load the, the next round. So it's like bang, ch -ch 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 bang. That's the best you can get. So when, you know, right there that weekend when everybody's saying, yeah, there was a bang-bang, then I said, well, it can't be from a one bolt-action rifle. So that was one of the things that got me onto it early on. Well, and, you know, there's just so many things about it. I mean, I everyone remembers that moment, you know. Everyone loved the Kennedys, you know, and little John John and Carolyn, you know. I mean, and it, yeah. I don't know. I, you know, at that, I was, I remember I was in, what was grade, was I in third grade or something like that. You know, when I was in a Catholic school and all the nuns prayed, all the kids prayed, and it was like, and then everyone was obsessed, you know, because it right. was played on TV. It's like CNN today, you know. It's like, yeah. you know, that was except, the precursor. Except if, if you'll remember, you know, they actually preempted everything. You couldn't turn on radio, you couldn't turn on a TV without hearing coverage of the assassination. Unlike 9-11, on 9-11 you could always turn over to the Disney Channel or the Cartoon Channel and watch something else, you know. Right. But, right. Uh, boy, that weekend it was the assassination and that was all that was happening. Right. That was it. That, yep. I mean, yeah. I and yeah, if it, you'll also think about it, because I, too, now keep in mind I never was a great Kennedy lover or supporter at the time. I was brought up in the in Southern Baptist, Texas, and we were told that he was a Catholic and the Pope would run the country and that, you know, blah, 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 he was too liberal, etc. But uh, I did think, and I still think it was really neat to see the pictures of little Caroline and little John John running around playing in the Oval Office. And, you know, we've never seen that since, have we? We have. Not, when's the last time we have seen little kids playing around in the presidential Oval Office? And that's because there was a, a uh, generational break uh, with the Kennedy assassination. He was the youngest president we've ever had, and everybody after him has been much older and uh, more stodgy. <laughs> and he right. was a breath of fresh air. He was going to change things. He was going to end the Cold War. He was going to uh, bring the troops home from Vietnam. He was going to reach uh, a, an agreement and, and uh, with uh, – uh, Fidel Castro, uh, he and Khrushchev met. They both decided they were going to try to end the Cold War. They were going into joint space exploration, you know. Uh, right. All of this good stuff was happening, and then, bang, he's killed, and we went right back into the same old stuff that's now leading us into where we are today, you know, trying to police the world, fighting in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, you name it, South America. we got, what, 147 uh, U.S. 
military uh, uh, bases all around the world, trying to tell everybody how to run everything, and yet we can't even keep our own country going. The uh, I just read recently where the American Society of Civil Engineers gives the uh, United States infrastructure. That means they've they checked on our highways, our bridges, things like that, and we have a D plus. D is in David. D plus. We're just almost to an F because we're spending all our money on the war machine. It's pretty amazing what the generations to follow us, you know, when I think about the kids, you know, what are they yeah. inheriting? They are inheriting oh, yeah. that, a mess and that, financially at some point and future, otherwise. Gonna, yeah, at some point in the future they're going to hold us accountable and they're going to say, you know, why do we have to live in this run-down third-world place, you know? Uh, why didn't you do something? And I'm not sure what our excuse is going to be. Well, I had to watch American Idol or something, you know. There'll be some <laughs> excuse. But uh, it's really amazing, and, and we're just sitting around. And, of course, I think the problem with a lot of people <clears throat> is simply the deer-in-the-headlight uh, phenomenon. You know, we're, we're in the middle of the road. We see the headlights coming at us, but we just quite don't know what exactly that means, and we don't know which way to jump. So you you were just you know you've had you've been a part of a lot of historical happenings and you have mm-hmm. done a lot of research, you know you have a global mind obviously. I mean when I was looking at some of the articles and the different things you've been involved with and you know it did not surprise me at all that you were fascinated and uh, knowledgeable about the remote viewings and right before your book's coming out, bam, it gets stopped. Right. Now, I'll tell you what I think happened there uh, is that they had to know I was writing uh, an expose on the remote viewing, the Army Psychic Warfare Program, uh, because, you know, I was interviewing all these people that were part of it, and that was interesting because some of them really wanted to talk because they thought this was an incredible story that people need to know about. Some of them didn't want to talk at all, and some of them would talk with me, but only in very guarded and couched terms. Uh, you know, so they had to know this. This what I'm doing, and so the reason that they canceled it at the last minute, even as it was going to print. In fact, I understand from some people they had already printed up a huge pile of these books, and they just scrapped them. They pulped them because the government said no. And the reason they said no is not because I was revealing the uh, psychic warfare program, but because everyone I talked to, everyone who was involved in this psychic warfare program with the government. Uh, had had firsthand uh, experience with UFOs. Now, some of them would talk openly about it, some of them wouldn't talk at all, and some of them would talk guardedly, but they all had this experience. For example, they would, and, they, and yet it was never on the uh, table. It was never, they never ordered anybody to go look at UFOs because they just, the powers that be thought that was just too silly or too, uh, too top secret. We're not going to talk about that. But what they would do <clears throat> is they would uh, task these uh, U.S. Army intelligence officers, remote viewers, to go up and look for high-flying, sophisticated uh, aircraft in the upper atmosphere, you know, with the idea to see if we could see what the Soviets or the Chinese might be using. Well, they'd go up there and they'd take a look, and they'd see these things flitting around in the atmosphere, and as one of them told me, he said, those guys aren't even from the neighborhood. They all ran into the UFOs, and that's what I put in my book. And I ended after laying down some very uh, credible uh, and historical information showing the validity 
of the remote viewing experience at the very end I was saying now this brings us to the UFOs and here's what they saw there and here's here's what they know about that and this is not and this is what they did not want off because the cover up of the existence of the UFOs and whatever they are whether it's extraterrestrial or interdimensional or maybe time travelers you know <clears throat> we're still not sure but they they're real and they've been here for a long time and this is something that the People who, not the government, not your, not your postman or your IRS agent or anything. This, this is what the people who run the government. This is what they do not want the public to know beyond any shadow of a doubt. And Cindy, I tell you, you, you know, why, why don't they want us to know this? Well, first off, I want to tell you that I don't think they truly care if we know that there are extraterrestrials out there. But what they do care about is if the public overnight and unanimously understands that there are these non-humans interacting with the earth, then they at the same time understand that there is advanced technology that is being used in and around the earth, but that we are being kept from. And uh, if everybody understood that, then they may not sit still for ever-increasing prices of gasoline and diminishing qualities of energy and unlike that, because they'd know there was something better that we could be doing. And it would it might upset their monopolies. When I say there, I'm talking about these elitists, these wealthy elitists that are trying to run the world and who run the governments, these, these uh, corporate leaders and bankers who run the world. Uh, it would upset their monopolies over medicine and uh, um, energy and telecommunications, et cetera, et cetera. Because when you get right down to it, for example, in the news media, okay, are including entertainment. There's only about five corporations now that control virtually everything that you see and hear. And I'm not just talking about news. I'm talking about book clubs. I'm talking about publishing. I'm talking about TV, satellite, you know, uh, 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 cable, uh, billboards, magazines, you name it, five corporations and with interlocking ownership and directorship. And this handful of people control everything we see and hear. And this is and what happened to our antitrust laws? <laughs> I mean, well, that all, you, know. you know, once once they gain control. See, <clears throat> we all know about Nazis and, and fascism in Germany, you know, that we had to go to war with in World War II. And, in fact, the uh, definition of of uh, fascism this comes from the black-shirted fascistas of uh, of it, of Italy that put uh, the Italian dictator Mussolini in power and what's interesting Cindy is that Mussolini himself said well you know fascism isn't really the correct term he said a, m- a more correct term is corporatism oops rule by the corporations and uh, this is exactly what happened in Nazi Germany and fascist Italy was that the state, the uh, Nazis, for example, in Germany, got control over the corporations. And it was that combination of state and corporate power that is the very dictionary definition of fascism. Well, in modern America, see, the corporations have gained control over the state. <laughs> so it's, it, the end result's the same. Well, the article that you shared on your website um, about the DuPont situation and the lawyer who was, 
you know, normally, were, you know, he was very knowledgeable on the EPA, you know, guidelines, et cetera, but he was, like, guiding the corporations on how to be in alignment with the new regulations, et cetera, but then, you know, the, the fluke call only because you know, the person knew his grandmother and, you know, he had these wonderful childhood memories. And the next thing you know, he's into one of the biggest cover-ups you've ever seen. Right. You know, and it's like, you know, DuPont knew that. I mean, I can remember, you know, this is totally off the track, but it's similar in a different way, not to the staggering um, effect of what DuPont did. But, you know, I can remember uh, one of my undergraduate degrees was in management, and we studied this whole thing about corporate responsibility. And, you know, they they did this um, case study on Nestle, you know, and they were going into these countries that had contaminated water and telling the women not to breastfeed, and then they were having them use their formula, powdered formula, with their water, and babies were dying everywhere, and they knew it. Right. They they right. knew it. And it's like, and then there was the movie made, The American Cowboy, where, you know, Marlboro knew way back when that those cowboys were dying from smoking <laughs> cigarettes, and then right. during the, the movie, the documentary, they're smoking, smoking, if I thought these would hurt me, do you think I'd be smoking them? You know, and it's like, there's been this whole thing of lack of responsibility um, exactly. and cover-ups. And, and we all look to the government to try to warn <laughs> us, at least warn us, if not regulate these things, you know, to protect the public. But unfortunately, right. it's gotten to where the corporations have now bought the government, okay? And now yeah. I was just reading the other day where the uh, – look at the uh, – this is how insane it is, and people don't seem to get it. The um, – for me, for well, I started to say for many years, but actually for centuries, people have been using hemp, uh, you know, as as uh, a medicine uh, to make shirts and clothing with. Uh, in fact, yeah. uh, it's been it's been stated that w- one acre of hemp can replace twenty acres of full grown trees uh, to make paper. Okay, right, and right. so. And we've been using hemp seeds and hemp, and I know uh, I've been eating hemp seeds in my salads for years. Okay, now, and now all of a sudden, of course, after years of all this propaganda about how bad pot is and marijuana and, you know, all these stiff laws, well, now it's loosening up a little bit. And now a couple of the pharmaceutical giants have decided that they actually are going to study the cannabinoids that's in uh, marijuana uh, to see if they can't turn and make them into some kind of medicine. Well, now the FDA says, okay, since these two companies are now testing this to be medicine, then that falls under medicine, and they're going to outlaw the natural hemp that's been used for centuries by everybody, you know. So this is well, this they, is obviously yeah. just a move to to uh, prop up the monopolies that the uh, pharmaceutical industry has uh, right because they're seeing to. a lot of money going away. You know, it's exactly. interesting. Yeah, Jeez, we don't I, want I, people just, taking yeah. natural <laughs> things that can heal them. You know, I, I it, actually. Right. I mean, I, I'm going to say this on the air. I can't believe I'm saying it on the air, but my my mom uh, had terminal cancer, and, you know, the morphine patch only went so far, and, you know, the other stuff they were giving her, and one night, I, and, and, yeah, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to see what happens, and I got her stoned. My mom had never been stoned in her life, never smoked marijuana, raised six kids, and went through, you know, right. like, the, the you know, you, you get it. Okay, yeah. but she didn't have pain for, like, 
two or three hours, and she laughed, and she laughed. So then I knew someone who had Marinol that uh, was in her 30s, and they had a hip replacement, and um, they didn't want to put her on the harder drugs, so they gave her Marinol. So I said, can I have one of those to see if, you know, because my mom had lung cancer. I'm like, you know, I don't know if that's such a good idea, oxygen around. I'm having her smoke pot. But at any rate, so I had her take this Marinol pill. It was kind of funny. Not funny, funny, but she said, why are there three of you? Well, she was seeing trails. She was, like, so stoned. So I was yeah. like, okay, that's probably too much. So then, so there was this new pain management doctor who came to the house, and she said, well, how much did you give her? I'm like, I don't know. I, I have one of the pills I can show you. And she looked at it, and her eyes got big, and she said, that's enough for an elephant. Your mom weighs, like, 90 pounds. I said, well, I don't know. All I know yeah. is that she laughed. She didn't have pain. She ate. You know what? I, can she please have this? And so she had to, it was like a big deal. They had to come to the house before they could write that prescription. And oh, no. so, Is that ridiculous? Wait a minute. It, I thought this was supposed to be the land of the free and home of the brave. I oh, thought we were supposed morphine. to be free people, you know? Yeah, you and have morphine. And how has it gotten to be where we have to crawl on hands and knees to the government and say, please, can we use this uh, wild weed that just grows right. anywhere? You stick a seed in the ground, you know, and God provides it everywhere. Uh, please let us use this. I mean, how ridiculous is this? Yeah. Don't get me guard, going. Well, there's so much insanity going on, and just think how many people have died in, in excruciating pain when they right. could have had some cannabinoids to take care of it. It's uh, it's oh, really it's sick. I could go on. But it's on not, one. and Cindy, it's not just in the pharmaceuticals. You find this everywhere. Uh, in in my book, uh, the Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, I wrote how that. Donald Rumsfeld, who we all remember from 9-11 and uh, was uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, back in the 80s, he was he was heading up Searle Pharmaceuticals. And uh, they were trying to get aspartame pushed through the federal regulators, and they were dragging their feet. They said, no, we, we have indications this might cause cancer, and we think there needs further study. And so Rumsfeld told people there at Searle, he said, don't worry about it. He got on the uh, transition uh, uh, government of Ronald Reagan, and the first thing you know, he appoints one of his guys to be head of the uh, uh, FDA, and uh, the uh, next thing you know, uh, they've, over the objections of federal regulators, they go ahead and approve aspartame only for use as a sugar substitute, you know, like you get the little packets in the restaurant. Right. But then uh, after everybody quit looking at it, then this guy, this friend of Rumsfeld's, then said, well, it's okay, we'll put it in soft drinks. And so right up until very recently, all of the diet soft drinks have had aspartame in it, which when you grab this, if aspartame, when it gets in, uh, get, reaches a temperature above uh, – 96 degrees, uh, it changes chemically into formaldehyde. Oh, I know. And, My girlfriend wrote and, a paper on this 30 years ago. 30 you years know ago about we were it. Everybody school. knew about it, and yet right. it's only been within the past few months that Pepsi-Cola announced that they were now finally removing aspartame from their diet colas. Right. And they were honest about it. They didn't say because they had decided it was bad or because they were trying to protect the public. They did that because public 
demanded it. Enough people said, we don't want this, because people began to finally realize how much damage this aspartame was doing. But it's they're still being used here, there, and everywhere. And this just shows you the decisions being made by the people who run our government that are not in the best interests of the public, and we need to change this. Well, let's go back, Jim, back to the day when Pepsi first came out, and they had a little bit of cocaine in it to give you a little zip. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, well, Coca-Cola, you know, Coca came oh, from the right. cola plant. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, up until, up until the, uh, I think about the mid-20s, uh, it had cocaine in it. And no wonder everybody liked Coke so well, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, drink some. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so I'm going to go back But see, that to was, again, that was back in the days of the old republic when you actually could go down to the drugstore and you could buy heroin, <laughs> you could buy opium, oh, I know. <laughs> you oh, could paragoric. buy cocaine, you know. <laughs> And here's the thing: Did they have? Did was there a drug problem? Uh, probably. They, there were probably some coke heads and some people back in the 1800s, early 1900s that probably had a drug problem, but it was not widespread. I would say it was no more than two percent of the drug-taking public. And so, what's interesting is today, after all these draconian laws and after all of this legislation and pri- imprisonment of people trying to do illegal drugs. Uh, the last statistics I saw is all still about the same. About two percent of the drug-taking population is hooked on heroin or, or uh, you know, some of these other hard narcotics. So, in other words, the basic problem has not increased or anything. It's just that the honest people and people like your mother, who could benefit from some pot, can't get it because it's all illegal. Oh, I know. The whole thing is just outrageous. Um, Okay, but I want to talk about UFOs for a moment, but I want to go back to the space program. You know, I grew up with my stepfather, um, who raised me from the time I was two, and adopted me. So he worked with the space program in St. Louis with McDonnell Douglas. And from mm-hmm. the time I was a little kid, we were just were not allowed to ask him what he did for six days a week. He worked six days a week. He worked <laughs> in the white room. Okay, he worked in the white room, and, you know, so they always, like, you know, the white room was, like, guards even to drop him off at work and keep the car for the day when there was just, like, one car in the family. You know, you'd have to go through these guards to get him to even drop off, you know, drop him off at work. And then, you know, we had pictures of the Apollo missions from day one. Okay, so one year, in comes the Saki thing. You know, like, he got a Christmas gift from from someone they were working with in the space program. And I said, Dad, are you working with the Japanese? And he's like, you know I can't talk about my work. And I'm like, yeah, but you've got Saki. Like, what are you doing with Saki? He goes, you can't ask those questions. You know? <laughs> it's like, so I think, I think you well, might Well, oh, wait a minute, he brought some Saki home? Was that the deal? Yes, it, yeah, it was like a Christmas gift at McDonnell Douglas with the space program. Somehow, some... Somehow they were working with the Japanese, obviously, yeah. Obviously. So no one ever really talked about that with the space program. But what I do, I I just remember, um, okay, this is like jumping all over the place, I know. But in 2008, I went to Egypt, and I was at this, um, it was one of the ancient ruins. And if you didn't know it was there, you would never have found it. You had to go way to the back of this, um, this building, and then you looked up, and there were these hieroglyphs, but it was, like, really high up, and you had to know it was there. And you saw uh, they look like submarines, helicopters. helicopters. Yep. Yes, and um, and what was the other? It was like they came by land, by sea, like all these advanced machines, flying machines and submarines way before. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 
Dolores Cannon, the, found, the, the founder of the Transformation Conference, and then she took over the UFO Conference when the founder um, made his transition, and she's made it into this huge thing. But she, you know, bef- before she crossed, you know, I interviewed her many times. She was a speaker at my own conferences. And she was, like, one of the UFO investigators. And, you know, what is going on, Jim? Just, like, how is it? I know you've spoken at a lot of UFO conferences, and you're at this one coming up, and you've done a lot of work with this. It's, it can't just be that they're afraid that we're going to realize that, you know, there's these advanced beings. I think I never really thought about, until you mentioned it, like I never thought about the fact that people might just be seriously annoyed that there's all this technology where we could be, you know, like like the Jetsons. Remember how they hovered and they, you know, they didn't drive cars on the streets, you know, they the space stations and everything. A lot of the stuff has come to pass, and it's like, but we could do better if we knew about this technology. Oh, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, and I know exactly what you're talking about because I, I've been there too. Uh, that's oh. that. Uh, it's at Sakara, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, but it's way and, in the back. Uh, yeah, you, and the, you would the only never reason know. it's still there. The only reason it's still there is because there had been a facing uh, uh, um, piece of, uh, of masonry up there above this doorway. And then in recent years, it fell off and it exposed all this. See, there's, there, you could have found all this all over Egypt, but it's been gradually and, and uh, maliciously eradicated, you know, just like, just like what the Taliban is doing uh, and ISIS, you know, destroying all these ancient uh, statues and carvings and stuff that try to tell us what's actually going on. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. And I'll tell you another thing at uh, uh, Seti's Temple. Uh, we were there, and uh, this guard happens to mention, he said, you want to see the Osirian? And what's that? And, well, if you should go back in, in the back side of Seti's temple, you go down these wooden steps, and you way underneath, which means it was all built before the ancient Egyptians built their stuff there. You find all of these ruins that are perfectly smooth, uh, evenly cut blocks, uh, with cross pieces, it looks like a Stonehenge, but it's uh, they're perfectly aligned uh, stones, uh, huge blocks of uh, marble, and uh, you know, and it's been there. It predates the Egyptians. So wait a minute, who, wow. who built that? Where'd that come from? There is so wow. much we do not know and have not been told about uh, human origins on this world, and the reason is because they want to keep us in the dark so they can keep their power and control. So wow. that's you need to read my book, Our Occulted History, and uh, I use the term occulted, uh, not in the sense of don't worry, it's not about witches or vampires or zombies or anything or anything we tend to think of as the occult. It's used in the astronomical sense when the moon, um, uh, you know, um, there passes in front of the sun. Uh, an eclipse, and you have and you have an eclipse. That's called an occultation, occultation, and it simply means to mask or to hide the sun. In fact, all oh, the word occult actually simply means hidden. That's all it really means. It doesn't have any negative connotation, particularly except in recent years. You know, they've given it a, a negative connotation. So, 
so our occulted history seem, simply means uh, the, our hidden history, the history that we have not been told about. And it's pretty interesting because right the very beginning of all of it goes back to the world's first recorded truly high civilization, that, and it predates the Egyptians by five or 6,000 years, and that is the ancient Sumerians from Sumer, S-U-M-E-R. And that was located between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which, of course, today is modern-day Iraq. And uh, they still have these um, cuneiform tablets from the Sumerians that are now scattered around in basements of museums all around the world, and only about 20% of them have been translated. But the ones that have been translated, not on one, but on several occasions when they start talking about how did it all begin, then they tell us about the Anunnaki. And the Anunnaki translates as those who came from the heavens and landed on the earth. And uh, they said the Anunnaki came down, taught them how to, uh, um, they taught them writing, they taught them law, they taught them farming, taught them agriculture, blah, 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 on and on. And, uh, you know, this is the thing that nobody wants to talk about, and yet it's just there. It's it's the elephant in the living room. Well, you you know, in, in Egypt, there's, I, for, I, this is terrible, but I don't remember the names of all the different ruins, but the one was all of the medical hieroglyphs. You know, here we are, you know, me being a nurse, I'm, I'm looking at forceps. I'm looking at all the different medical instruments that we're seeing in modern-day hospitals today. That's right. They, they had, had them back there. Yeah. Yeah, they even had clay pacifiers. They had pacifiers, the orthodontic, you know, like little, little nukes or whatever they call them for kids that are shaped yeah. to the. Yeah, they were. They had them back in that time. <laughs> sorry, I, th- so- I think uh, I think my I think my grandson calls it his binky. <laughs> right, right. That's the new thing. So, so you saw right, the Egyptian, but- ancient Egyptian binkies. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, and then and then the the um, oh, was it Dendara? The one. No, actually, I think it was Osiris. We we okay. We had we we had private times in all these different places, and so right. we were in this temple with the sound healing chambers. And our time was at midnight, right? And I'm uh-huh. thinking we have to be the last group, surely. Um, but we were using tuning forks, and we were in this one chamber where you know each of us just t- took a turn with toning and you know anything you know right. that we felt inspired to do. Oh my gosh, when you think about those healing chambers with sound, it was just yeah. I you know and then we came out at one o'clock and there was another group still coming in. I was just <laughs> like, oh my gosh. I know, we, you know we we had private time in the Great Pyramid, but we had to go there like so four we. in the morning or something like we that. We did too. We had to leave our but, hotel at three okay, thirty so and everybody so was So you've been in the Great Pyramid, right? Yes. Okay, yes. and you've yes. turned yes. around other, and you've turned around other places, Egypt. Now, everywhere you went, whether it was a temple or whether it was a palace, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there were hieroglyphics on every yes. available space, right? On the yes. columns, yes. on the walls, you name it. There's always hieroglyphics right. there, right? Right? Yes. Okay. Now you went to the Great Pyramid. Do you remember seeing any hieroglyphics whatsoever? Well, first of all, if anyone no. had told me what it would be like to go in there, I don't know that I would have done it. I, I'm a little bit funny with tight spaces. Well, the lights went off. Uh-oh. The lights <laughs> went off as we were going up the little, you know, wrong way. Like, yeah. Oh, yes. And I had a backpack with me, and, you know, I mean, you can't put it on your back. You had to carry it between your legs because it's such a tight space. And we're in total 100% darkness. 
Luckily, someone had candles when we got up to, you know, the chamber. But, no, I don't remember seeing hieroglyphs there at all. Nothing. That's right. You're right. Now, th- Never does thought that about it. Not, does, does that not pretty well prove to you that the uh, Great Pyramid was never a tomb? If it was some pharaoh's tomb, they would have covered it with hieroglyphics. There's something else going on there, and I think I'm in agreement with the British scientist uh, who said that the Great Pyramid was a power generator. And, in fact, it was part of a worldwide civilization that predated the Egyptians that was built probably before the Great Flood, in which time there was a highly advanced, highly technological civilization that covered the entire world. And their power source were these pyramids. And this is why today we are finding pyramids, not just on the Giza Plateau, but in Central America, South America, China, Indonesia, Eastern Europe, okay, I just and these ancient mounds in North America, you know, this this is all part of a ancient civilization that we do not know about, okay, and is being kept from us by the powers that be. You know, uh, this is so fascinating. I've seen the mounds in Ohio. We have the, um, you know, in Illinois, we have Cahokia mounds, you know, and there's a, the there's an international global pyramid conference happening in chicago and i'm working you know um i've always been fascinated and there's in bosnia there's pyramids too and um so so another thing though that i was just oh where was i going to go with this oh oh oh, i don't want to let go oh i know when you were talking about iraq at the st louis art i I live in st louis and at the st louis art museum at one point they had this whole exhibit and it was uh but they but they didn't call it iraq they called it something else and i have probably called it mesopotamia I don't think so. They, but but the whole Persia, thing is that or Persia, you know, they, no. they call it under all kinds of different names. I know, there's it's all, all different the names. same place. Right. You know, it's all right. the same place. But it was just like Egypt, like you know, the the burials with the things for the afterlife, and you know, it was very similar. I remember thinking this feels like they're talking about Egypt, you know, and mm-hmm. I just never really thought about this. Oh my gosh. Okay, so have you have you been to the UFO conference in Eureka Springs before? Yes. So but it's been okay. several years back. Okay. Several Can years you back. Tell our it was, that was when Lou Farish was running the when thing. When he was and, in charge, uh, right, right. Yeah. 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 And uh, okay. I'm not sure I'm not sure what happened there, but I just didn't make it back for a long time and I'm really looking forward to it because every time I've gone to one of those uh uh, uh, Ozark UFO conferences. It's it's always been great. It's been really really good. And okay, well, this uh, Eureka is my first Springs time. is well, you're you're gonna love Eureka Springs. What a well, I've been party. to Eureka Springs. I I actually um, Dolores Cannon. Um, I just uh, totally totally respected her work, and she was one of the keynote speakers at one of uh, Spirit Seeker, the magazine that puts on this radio show. Um, she was a speaker uh, back in 2008, and then after that, I went to Eureka Springs, and she did a um, private past life regression for me because I just had some things that I wanted to understand a little bit. And mm-hmm. Eureka Springs was absolutely beautiful. So I know in the spring it's going to be beautiful. But from what I understand, this UFO conference that she she took it over um, after the original founder, um, you know, crossed or right before, whatever, mm-hmm. there was a transition there. And she has taken this thing, and from what I understand, it is sold out. Every hotel everywhere is like, you know, I made my reservation early, and there were 60 on the list ahead of me at the main hotel. Wow. <laughs> I was like, okay. Well, yeah. you know, I'm like, okay, I'll take the second best 
one down the road. <laughs> and I'm, this is like three months before this happened. That sounds like you're but, lucky to get got, to have gotten in at all. Oh, I know, I know. So can you tell us, okay, for listeners who are like, what happens at a UFO conference? I mean, I, I have my own take on what I think is going to happen, but would you share, like, why they should well, be let me getting go back the reservation? And show, and, yeah, here is the evolution of the UFO conference, because <clears throat> as a newsman in the late 60s and 70s, I would go to some of these UFO conferences, and back then it was mostly made up of what I call um, metal ship people, okay? It was usually men and usually older men, and usually men who had military and or aerospace or aviation experience, and the panels and the questions and the talk going around was generally, um, what's the power plant? How, how are they powered? You know, and what's the, what's the flight configuration? You know, are they saucers? Are they uh, aero-shaped? You know, what? It was, it was really kind of a, I don't know, kind of an engineer-type mentality. And it's then, like going to a dowsing conference and seeing the farmers everywhere? Yeah, Sorry. yeah. Okay. And so then there was a period there uh, after I left the newspaper and I started, uh, I was dabbling in public relations advertising, uh, which I really enjoyed and I was really making good money, but I never quite got the printer's ink out of my blood, you know. So, but there was a period, oh, and I had children, that'll strap you down. So uh, <laughs> from about 1980 to about 1990, uh, I, I kind of lost contact with the UFO community. And so then in the early 90s, um, as I began to work on the remote viewing book, uh, again, I suddenly came into contact with these UFOs, and I decided I think I'm going to look into UFOs. So I started going back to uh, UFO conferences, and I was just blown away because all of a sudden, where I had been used to seeing just these metal ship guys, all of a sudden here's uh, crystal people, new age people, people talking about karma, chakras, all this stuff, you know, I'm going, whoa, what's happening here? <laughs> and then I begin to realize, though, world, it's Jim. all no. part of the same ball of wax, you know. It really all does fit in. And so now it's interesting because at the UFO conferences, you get a pretty good mixture of all of this. You have the people who have the scientific curiosity, you have people who have the spiritual or the uh, paranormal uh, interest, and they're all in their exchanging ideas, and I think we're getting a lot closer to figuring out uh, the real uh, answers to some of the puzzles about the UFOs and what's going on. Well, you know, um, before before you came on the air, I was, I, I cannot remember this whole story. Dolores shared it. Um, there was some type of a pact, and this was a global pact, like with different governments that they would not discuss certain things with UFOs and I know especially Roswell area I always get I always want to call it 54 and that's not it's not area, area 51 area 51 okay but yeah. but there was a bigger deal with like France is the one that supposed this is and I might be wrong so correct me please if I'm wrong France finally said we're we're done like not talking about it, and France oh, started talking yeah. about the UFOs. You know, yeah, but what, well, let me correct you on one thing. In, in my, to my knowledge and to my research, it was not the other countries of the world that all agreed they wouldn't talk about it. 
it was the United States, and primarily the United States military, which has such a presence in all of these countries, and and usually ends up training their military. And the U.S. military and the CIA are the, are the primary movers of this UFO embargo. They're the ones who were, uh, you know, sending aid and comfort to all these other countries and then telling them, don't talk about it. But okay. as you just said, and it's absolutely true, that the French have broken loose. They've come out with a report uh, uh, with the stamp of approval of their government saying it's all real. Uh, there has now been MI6 information coming out of the U.K. Mexico has always been free and open about it. When they have a UFO thing, it's on national television, and they talk about it, and they invite people to comment. Okay, South America is rife with UFO stories. So almost every other country in the world now, including Russia, uh, has been very forthcoming about the truth about UFOs and, and their occupants, except us. Here in the land of the free, home of the brave, you're still not supposed to talk about that. And, again, the reason for that, Cindy, is because our military-industrial complex, which, let's face it, runs this country, they look on UFOs as advanced technology, which in their mind equates to advanced weaponry. And so, you know, if they're having a, a new weapons test, they don't dare talk about it and let our potential enemies know uh, what kind of weaponry we're developing. And so that's the big deal. That's why they don't want to talk about UFOs, because they want to keep that knowledge to themselves. Never mind that this is probably the greatest story in the history of humankind, you know, and and how how, how audacious is it, is it of them to think that, well, we'll just keep this to our military and we won't tell even our own people what's really going on. But then also, Cindy, if you'll think about it, there there is some, some reasoning there. Uh, the government, the U.S. federal government, is the government of everybody, okay? And there's a lot of people, let's face it, who don't want to hear about this. They don't want to hear about oh, the possibility of extraterrestrials. They don't want to hear about things They don't want to hear around. about the star people. They don't want to hear right. about the star they, people. They, the they don't want to hear about any of this stuff. I know. So I know. the government being of the people, all the people, and, and again, and not wanting to give away our technology, and there's also this uh, philosophic uh, angle to it, which is, uh, about the only real reason there is for government uh, comes back to the, the only two powers given to the federal government by the Constitution of the United States, which is to coin and regulate money, which they've abdicated. They gave that up in 1913, turned it over to the Federal Reserve, which is a collection of banks, okay, and to provide for the common defense. Okay, so now if they come out and announce that we have these things flying through our atmosphere, and we not only do not know specifically who they are or what they want, but we can't stop them, okay? Right. Well, then, hey, why are we paying all this money for defense, right? <laughs> so they can't admit to that. And so then okay, they also have to cater to okay. all of the public. And as we just said, a lot of people don't want to hear about this stuff. So they come out with cockamamie stories trying to explain things like Roswell, Okay, they say, oh, Roswell, that was just a top-secret mogul balloon, and there were only crash dummies there, you know. Oh, well, right. Oh, I know the whole uh, thing. It's crazy. You know that. Crazy. And so anybody that bothers right. to look will find out that they weren't doing crash dummy tests until the mid to late 50s. And so, you know, in fact, the, the poor colonel who was, uh, you know, telling everybody this at, at a uh, press conference, and a reporter asked him, says, well, you're saying they're crash dummies, but they didn't do these tests? Till the 50s, and he said, I remember him distinctly, he said, well, I really don't know what they saw in 1947, 
which is the absolute truth. And then I'm thinking, well, then why are you holding this news conference, you know? Oh, my gosh. But, okay. So, no, so what they've done here, yeah. Cindy, is great. We're about out of time, but here's the thing. Oh, I know. So I just called, want to mention the website, OzarkUFOConference.com. And this is oh, Jim absolutely. Mars. Okay, Jim, And everybody going, comes. It's going to be great. <laughs> so uh, so they, they tell us it's crash dummies and people who know better know that's a lie. So they go, holy cow. They're backhandedly, they're telling us that it really happened. But the people who don't want to know can sleep at night and say, well, the government said it was just crash dummies. Oh, 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 oh. But people are awake, and there's the Internet now, and it's different. That's right. And, and you know, okay, I just can't thank you enough, Jim. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right and I'm so, I so apologize for not being on oh, the stop, phone quick. Stop. No, no, it's fine. And I, you know, I'm doing my own switchboard these days, and I need to learn a few more things, obviously. And then I'll be able to patch in my callers. (laughs) There we go. That would be great. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Come to the Ozark Mountain Conference, UFO Conference. Okay, Jim, I look forward to meeting you. Okay, good night, everyone. Me too. Bye-bye. Okay, good night.